In a recent podcast interviewing the Catholic Bishop Robert Barron, Jordan Peterson urges that values are possible only through an act of faith and that the highest ideal is sacrifice. Now, this podcast was one of Peterson's most popular in the last year, garnering almost 800,000 views. Uh, Bishop Robert Barron has one of the most popular Catholic podcasts. And Peterson, of course, uh, is one of the most influential public intellectuals on the scene today, making this topic, as discussed by these figures, uh, a worthy topic of conversation in its own right. So welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Bayer. I'm a fellow and instructor at ARI. With me is Ankar Gatte, uh, my colleague and senior fellow at ARI. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ben. So uh, I want to start digging into this podcast. We're actually going to display, we're going to show some clips from it today and comment on them. Um, part of the reason why I thought it was something we should discuss is because Peterson's made his name in large part uh, as a scientist. He's a psychologist. Uh, and yet what you see in this interview is him finding a lot of common ground with this prominent religious figure. We usually think of religion and science as opposed to each other. Uh, part of what they talk about is why they don't think they are. That's something we need to comment on. Um, but it's something we also should discuss, I think, this conversation, because Jordan Peterson is often cited as a kind of hero by critics of the left. Um, and, I, and I think, in fact, you know, Peterson has stood up quite courageously to some of the more uh, irrational leftist policies. And he's pretty unique as a public intellectual who he combines his activism with a really deep philosophical approach. That's part of the reason why we invited Peterson to do an event with us at Ocon a few years ago. Uh, he's always been sympathetic to various themes coming from religion, but it seems lately that his, his interest has deepened uh, and I mean, I don't think that embracing religion is any kind of a solution to, to fighting the left. And so that's uh, something that we need to talk about, um, especially as we look at these uh, clips where they talk about these premises that they have in common about why faith is necessary, not even opposed to reason or, or science. One of the ways that the, I think the interview is almost two hours. I forget, I think it's just under two hours the conversation. So obviously we're not going to play all of it, but I think part of the way it's framed is that religion is on the side of objectivity or at least the Catholic approach to religion is on the side of objectivity. And so to set it up that what it means that they're critics of the left is that the left is supposedly about subjectivism and they're on the side, in some sense, they think of objectivity. And that way of setting it up as well. So we'll talk about the issue of faith and the way that they think about it and whether it's right that the way that they think about it, but also that issue of subjective versus objective. What you should think about, if you're thinking about what's in the podcast, uh, the, the conversation Peterson has. And if that whole framing is right, um, if you take subjectivism to mean as a kind of as a philosophical doctrine that things depend on the mind or the person's mind or a consciousness, 
And if you think of critiques of the left, the, the kind that they make, and think of the issue that that sort of set Peterson on the course of becoming famous. So the conflict that he had in when he's at the University of Toronto in, in Canada, it's about pronouns. And one of the critiques about this is like, you're just making it up, 10 new pronouns, 15 new, and that's treated as subjectivism. Like it just depends on your consciousness. And now you're telling me what to do. But you have to wonder about all of religion and particularly the Catholic version of it. Isn't the view that all of reality is created by a consciousness and dependent on it and so on. And that's not subjectivism. Um, and, but that's how it's framed. And, and it, so it's worth when thinking about the way they're looking at it to know that's part of the overall framing and whether that framing makes sense. Yeah, that, uh, there'll be several opportunities, I think, to reflect on that parallel that you just noted. So let's, let's go to the first clip. Uh, where both Peterson and uh, Barron discuss this common premise they have about the necessity of faith. And I'll, I'll try to keep my reactions to a minimum, though I should mention as an, as an ex-Catholic, some of this is a little triggering to me, uh, but we'll come back to that. So go ahead. The Bible just doesn't exist as a book on a shelf. It's, yeah. it's a, a pattern of meaning within a context, and the context has to be taken into account. Um, so you say, well, there's a powerful context for its interpretation. It's also a fundamental text in that the Bible is implicit in all sorts of other great texts like Shakespeare or yeah. any, anything that's a product of Judeo-Christian culture it, that's a deep product is deeply affected by the Bible. So it's there implicitly whether you like it or not. And so yeah. it has to be taken seriously, I would say, even if you don't b believe it, but then to the degree that you believe the central axioms of Western culture, you have to wonder how much of what's biblical you do end up believing because of its implicitness. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all through the Western culture for sure. Um, and, and the question of belief, you know, in, in some ways is the most fundamental question in all of theology. We call it fundamental theology. How do you, how do you articulate the meaning of belief? And, you know, for the best people in our tradition, belief is always on the far side of reason, not the near side of reason. And that's a mistake that so many people make today, young people especially. Faith or belief, they mistake for credulity or superstition, something sub-rational. And our best people, of course, have always repudiated that. Authentic faith is on the far side of reason. So reason's done all the work it can and should do. But then there's this moment when the claim is made Deus dixit, right? That God has spoken. Now, do I believe that or not? I think it's precisely analogous to coming to know a person. You know, so I, I know something about you just from you know, watching you over the years, and I can Google you, and I can read your books, and I can come to some sort of objective knowledge of you. Uh, now, in this virtual means, I've, you know, met you. And so my mind is working, trying to understand where you're coming from. But let's, I mean, project into the future. If you and I, uh, met in person, you and I eventually became friends. And at some point, you spoke a truth about yourself that I could never have gotten on my own. I could never have gotten it from any objective source. You revealed something to me, right, of your inner life. And at that point, I've got to make a decision. Well, do I believe that or not? I, I can't prove it. I can't ratify it. It's congruent with everything I've known. So that's one test I could give. If you told me something that's just wildly incongruous with everything else I know about you, 
I, I probably not believe that. But if you tell me something that's congruent with what I know, but goes beyond it, and I have to say at that point, okay, I, I have to believe that or not. I, I think faith is like that in a way. So the Bible, I can approach in all kinds of different ways. But the claim being made at the heart of the Bible, of biblical revelation, is Deus Dixon. God has spoken. God has said something in this text. Do I accept it? And, and that has to be a decision that's born of something beyond reason, not opposed to it, but beyond it. So that's, I think, where belief in the, in the religious sense comes in. Okay. So this is, this is a common argument that you hear uh, from, I think, a lot of people about why uh, faith is not irrational. My religious belief is not irrational. It's also an old argument. It's an argument that was given, I think, by many philosophers. John Locke was a prominent one who gave a version of this argument. But it trades on a kind of equivocation over the concept of faith. Uh, you, you see the argument get set up where I, I learn something about Jordan Peterson. I meet him. I, I see him saying things. I maybe even find out if what he says is true. So I get a, he, he has a certain reputation that he acquires with me, uh, a track record of telling the truth. And then in another instance, he says something that I don't have the opportunity to check for myself. And so I trust him. It's not something I can check myself, but he's got a track record in the past. The trouble is there's a big difference between that and believing that God is speaking to you, uh, where there isn't any grounds uh, for, uh, there isn't any track record of God's having testified to us accurately in the past. There's an there's a equivocation between rational trust on the one hand where there's evidence and just groundless belief, which is what faith usually means on the other. Um, there, there aren't any grounds for that kind of a belief. Um, some people think that there are. Some people think that there are arguments you can give at least for the existence of God. Even that doesn't give you a track record of reliable testimony on behalf of God. Um, but it's, it's interesting, elsewhere in this podcast, uh, the bishop mentions having studied all of these arguments for the existence of God well after he already believed. And so it's not really, that wasn't even really his basis for believing in the first place. Um, we could say more about uh, uh, Locke's argument here, but I think uh, I'd be curious to hear what more you have to say about this, Ankar. Yeah, I would think about the parallel he's drawing. I mean, this is part of what you're touching on, the parallel he's trying to draw and how much of it, it is not a parallel. So he gives the example like Jordan Peterson, you know him, you've seen him on YouTube, you may have gone to a, an event where Jordan Peterson's speaking. So, you know he exists, you know he's a human being, you know a lot of things that he's said and written. And then it's, well, if Jordan Peterson tells you, I mean, something like this, if he tells you, I had a dream last night about when I was six years old, do you accept that or not? I mean, you can't, you weren't part of the dream, you can't get inside his head, but so did it. And like that's, do you accept his testimony? That you're taking the Bible as it's the word of God. It's not at all parallel. You don't know a God exists. Um, so there's not an issue of you've had all this kind of interaction with God, and then God tells you something like, well, I had a dream, and are you going to accept that or not? It's not at all parallel. And this is what you're bringing up with the arguments for the existence of God. There's 
basically nobody who accepts that God exists because of an argument. They've already accepted it and then they fish around for arguments of why it's not uh, groundless and why they have some kind of logical title or warrant to accept this belief, but that's not why they hold it. And it's an argument to then in effect a conclusion that I'm postulating. It's you haven't encountered God, you don't have this experience with him. So the idea that it's it's that there's this kind of parallel is not true. And it's what it's trying to, to kind of rely on, I think, is look, we do this in science. We have to figure out there's some things that are really hard to figure out and what is going on in somebody's head. It's hard to figure out. And do you trust the person's introspection and the, the account of what he's giving? And like psychology, what, what in the field Jordan Peterson's in, has to really grapple with that question. Like, how do we know what's going on inside a person's mind? Here, it's not parallel because what uh, religion is invoking and what Catholicism invoking is the supernatural, is exactly something that transcends science, nature, cause and effect, that things have a firm and limited identity. God's beyond all of that. And there's no kind of scientific argument evidence that you're giving, drawing a parallel to, well, isn't it difficult to figure out what's going on inside a person's mind that can get you to, oh yeah, now I know that the supernatural exists, something that is beyond science, logic, reason, and identity. Yeah, and there's, that touches on uh, one of the things that comes up in, in Barron's statement about uh, how part of why he thinks faith is not subrational is that he thinks well it doesn't contradict your reason he says reason's done all its work and as long as the claims you're making are congruent with what you know then uh, it's okay to in effect take a leap of faith beyond that but if if as you're saying uh, the, the the nature of the claim that we're being asked to believe here is uh, something that we have no evidence for in the first place or even for the possibility of the possibility of a supernatural dimension um the possibility of a being that creates the entire universe uh that's and, and we're going to talk more later about other incongruities between the kinds of claims uh, that we're asked to accept and, and what we know yeah and it, it, it's worth in effect just saying like, so he's telling you this now, it's, oh, you don't have to accept anything incongruent, anything that conflicts with your present understanding. So see if he sticks to that as we play some of the further clips or if there's a switch and now like the essence is accepting things that don't make sense. Before we go to the next clip, though, Ankar, I wonder if you wanted to say a little something about what Peterson says toward the beginning about how uh, whether whether you believe in this religion or not, it's still the case that Judeo-Christianity is in some sense fundamental to Western culture, and that's a reason to take it seriously. What, do you, what did you think of that? Yeah, I, I think in the broadest sense, what Peterson is saying is true if you understand what fundamental means. So to say the Bible, if you said it more broadly, that Judeo-Christianity is fundamental to Western culture, that means fundamental to understanding it, its periods, its history, but particularly its intellectual trends and currents, um, but more broadly, its history. 
And I think that's true. And, and I mean, it's basically undeniably true that the, with the, after the fall of Rome and the rise of Christianity, it dominates in one way or another the intellectual world for centuries and centuries. And even movements that you think of as, well, they're not um, saturated with Christianity are usually rebelling against, like I would put the Renaissance and the Enlightenment as both periods in which uh, Western thinkers are in various ways trying to free themselves of the grip of Christianity. So to think of it as fundamental means it impacts much of Western culture. And if so, if you're trying to understand it, you need to um, understand the stories of the Bible and more broadly, the doctrines of, of Judaism and Christianity. And that's part of what Peterson in effect is saying. He says something like, whether you believe it or not, you have to take it seriously. And I think that's true, but it's not the same thing as saying, and it's often this kind of equivocation is made. To say it's fundamental is not to say it's the cause of the good things in Western culture. That's a different issue. And you might think, in addition, it's fundamental and it's fundamental to the good things in Western culture or to the things that are distinctive to Western culture. And I, don't, I think both of those are not true. I mean, that's a long argument to argue about the, how to think about what's good and bad in Western history and Western culture. But it's certainly not the case that everything is good in Western history. There's been periods of real brut brutality and periods of decline that we've retrogressed. And you have to think about like, what's the cause of that? What's the cause of the progress? What's the cause of Western culture outstripping every other culture when you get into the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and beyond? And there, I think the, the, the view, um, I mean, so this view certainly has challengers, but the view that the roots of what's good and distinctive in Western culture comes from Greece and then Rome, but particularly if we're thinking intellectually, it comes from the Greek thinkers who predate Christianity. And that's what's distinctive to Western culture that it builds on those foundations. I think that is the right perspective. So to say it's fundamental is not to say the same thing as it's the source of what's good or distinctive. Yeah, and so one of the things that we should think about going forward here, especially if faith is not the same thing as just plain rational trust when you have evidence to rely on someone's testimony, if, it, if what it is instead is groundless belief, uh, especially in some authority who says who you're to accept just because they say so, What's the impact of that on Western culture to the extent that it's taken seriously? Not because it's a subject of study historically, but because people actually try to act on it. What, what good things have we gotten from that? And we'll get a better sense, I think, of what it means to act on that attitude uh, when we look at some of these next few clips. Yeah. So what, yeah, why don't we queue up yeah, a second? So, so let's take, um, we're talking about one aspect of faith and faith as it's just you're having trust in somebody's word or something. But there's another aspect that is often brought up and it comes up in this podcast, which is that you need faith 
faith gets you started. It gets you started in reasoning. It gets you started in what you're pursuing, what, how to act. And, or if you look at it from the other direction, to justify your actions, you give, um, you, you point to a reason and you point to another reason. And that has to come to a stop. And the argument is, well, your stopping point or your starting point, looking at it from the other direction, is you have to rely on faith. It's, you don't have any further reasons, so isn't that faith? So let's see how they defend this idea. It seems to me to take faith to operate always when we don't know what we're doing, and we usually don't know what we're doing. And so part of the reason that you have to have faith is because you're actually ignorant, and it, it fills in the gaps, right? Because otherwise you'd be stuck with a, a never-ending regress. You just ask why all the time. And then you could never act because the why has to end somewhere. And I think by virtually by definition, it ends with an act of faith. That might be akin to your idea about faith being beyond reason. It's like, well, look, if, if I asked you why you're um, having this conversation with me, you'll give me a reason. And yeah. if I ask you why that reason is valid, you'll give me another reason. And if I do right. that five or six times, you're going to run out of reasons. And but you're but still you're having the conversation. God. So that means you have faith that the conversation can go somewhere good. And that's not actually a delusion. No, no, no. And, I, and actually, you're moving toward God. And I think that's a, a classic route in our tradition. Um, and just the way you were doing it. Why are we having this conversation? I can give, you know, these particular reasons. But then ask the why again. Ask it a third, a fourth, a fifth time. Finally, I'm going to get to something like, well, because I want to be happy. You know, uh, what ultimately motivates the will is some desire for happiness. Well, no, what's happiness? Well, keep pressing that question. It can't be something simply in this world. We all know that doesn't make us happy in the way that we're seeking. It's something like the summum bonum, right? Something like the ultimate good. I want to be happy in the fullest possible sense all the time, which is why, you know, Teilhard de Chardin said this, that I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning unless I believe in God. And that's what he meant, was if you do that kind of horizon analysis of every act of the will, even the simplest, like getting out of bed, you finally come to the summum bonum. Okay, so let me walk through that. Okay, so first of all, it's, I mean, so Peterson makes a good point at the beginning of this when he notes that you can't have an infinite regress of justifications, whether you're trying to justify your action or you're trying to justify uh, some claim that you're making. Uh, there's no, infinity is impossible. We've got to stop somewhere. Yes, there's got to be starting points, both in our knowledge and in our justif justification for our action. But there is no argument given here, nor do I think could there be an argument given here for why the starting point needs to be faith. Or anything like it. Uh, in a part of the of this podcast that we cut out, Peterson gives a kind of extended example of of what he's talking about, and he talks about why am I moving my fingers on this keyboard while I'm writing a book? Why am I being a book? Because I'm being a professor. Why am I being a professor? Uh, to be a good citizen, and that's then supposed to be nested in a wider in this wider summum bonum that uh, the bishop is talking about, uh, which he thinks is he says connected to religious concepts. Um, but is it is it really true? 
as Peterson claims, we don't know what we're doing most of the time and that he doesn't know what he's doing when he's moving his fingers or when he's being a professor. I think he thinks better of even himself than that. Uh, isn't, isn't what he's doing there trying to pursue the truth about whatever his field is as his chosen career? And is he really claiming that it's an act of faith to value the truth? I mean, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's when you're making the something like the pursuit of truth, your ultimate value in your field, in your career, in your life. Uh, that's the opposite of saying, I'm going to believe things without any evidence. I'm going to believe things that are groundless. Uh, Peterson's right that this starting point, in some sense, is some, in some very important sense, is something you have to choose. I think that's part of why he wants to emphasize that it's an act, but it's not an act of faith. Uh, it's, it's precisely choosing to make reason uh, central to your life. That's my comment on, um, on what Peterson says, but now I have to turn to his, uh, to the response by the bishop, uh, the stuff about how the ultimate good summum bonum needs to be unconditioned, i.e. God. Here the, uh, technical term I want to apply to this argument is unconditional BS. That's just complete BS. Uh, regardless of how much Latin it's dressed up in, and he likes to drop the deus dixit sumum bonum actus purus to make it sound fancy, but uh, I mean, there's no such thing as an unconditioned good. There could not be such a thing as an unconditioned good. Uh, something that's valuable is valuable to someone for something. And if there is anything and this is Ayn Rand's view, and I, and I agree with her, if there's anything in the universe that's, that you can identify as an end in itself, it's the life of an of a individual organism. Uh, it's an end in itself because it requires more of itself in order to keep on going. It's a, it's a process that's self-sustaining and self-generated. There's more we could talk about there, but it's still conditional. Uh, it's conditional, for example, on the choice to pursue it in the case of human beings, the very thing that Ivan Peterson's emphasizing. Um, Ankur, what do you think about all this? It's, it goes back, I think, ultimately to a little of what I talked about at the start about the framing of it, of subjective versus objective. And part of the reason I think there's this idea that the regress stops and it's an act of faith that if you think of it the way they think about action and morality and what you're supposed to do, because it's really stressing th this issue of values, that if you think of it as their commandments from the beyond, and you're asking God, like he tells you, you have to do this, you have to honor your parent. Why do you have to do that? Well, it keeps family life going. And why do you have to do that? Well, it keeps the tribe going. Why do you have to keep the tribe going? Because I told you to. And he doesn't give any further reason and so on. And it's, that's what you have to accept. And for that is an act of faith to just take someone say so as, okay, yeah, that's an order and I have to do it. But if you're thinking really what reason is about, then it's about connecting you to reality. And you were stressing on the action side. It's about thinking that I have a life to live. I can be happy in it or not. Um, I have to embrace my life, I have to embrace reality and my life in it. And to do that, I need to embrace my reason. And so, and so there's choices involved, but they're not arbitrary or faith-based or so on. It's you're embracing reason and reality. And the same is true at the level of, we're not talking about action and values, 
but just of knowledge that you could say the same things for knowledge. Like I think that the, the chair I'm sitting in is made of atoms. Why do I think that? Well, I can give some further explanations for whether atomic theory comes up. And it's, I mean, it's a lengthy series of explanations. So, and for each of them, you can ask, well, why do you think that? And why do you think that? And it comes to a stopping point. But the stopping point is not, oh, well, I just accepted that on faith. It's that I see it or I hear it. it, it the stopping point is evidence, but it's the evidence of your eyes and ears, and the evidence of your senses. It comes to a stop, but you can't call that, oh, so you just have faith then. It's the opposite, and this is what a distinction between reason and faith means. If you're going by reason, you're always asking for evidence, and it doesn't have to be an infinite, and it can't be an infinite regrets of evidence, but you still need evidence, a connection to reality through your reasoning mind. So that whole perspective, they're not really taking seriously what the a secular, non-religious view might say about this. You could say broadly an Aristotelian view about that, that, that is thought about starting points and doesn't think they come down to faith. And the other thing I want to stress, just in terms of thinking about the advice being given, it, this comes up early in, in the clip we played that it's um, what faith is about in, in a way, one way that it's put is filling in the gaps. So you don't know something, so then you can have faith about what the answer is or what the solution is. And that is a completely illegitimate way of proceeding and a dangerous and destructive way of proceeding. If you don't know something, you don't know it. And that's what you should tell yourself. I don't know here. And it might be that you have to act. And so you have to, in effect, flip a coin. That happens sometimes in life. Not that often, but it can happen that I, I really don't know. I can't make heads or tails of this, but I've got to make a decision about my health or something like that. Like the doctors are giving me answers that, that really don't make any sense, um, but I have to take some kind of action. And you can have some reasons, but you're basically saying, I don't know, and I'm going to try something and see what happens. But to tell yourself that, oh, I actually do know. And it's, well, if I look in the Bible or I look somewhere else and I just swallow that and accept it without any reason, you're pretending to yourself that you know when you don't know. And if you don't admit to yourself you don't know, you're never going to figure it out. If you tell yourself, yeah, I've already got the answer, it's uh, whatever, it's because the stars are aligned in this way and that's why I got cancer or something, that, that it's, you'll never figure out what the actual cause of cancer is. So it can sound like, oh yeah, what's the danger of filling in the gap? It is really dangerous to do that. And it's anti-logic, anti-reason, anti-science to pretend that you know something when you don't. You mentioned that we, we, we don't often have to just flip a coin blindly, uh, but that maybe sometimes we do, and that's how we make decisions in that kind of case. But I think it's also worth underscoring that uh, it, it it's true that we don't always have certainty about what's the right thing to do uh, and that we don't have to have certainty in order to act. But most of the time in those kinds of cases, we still have the balance of probabilities, uh, you know, suggesting one action rather than another. And that's not acting in face of ignorance. That's acting on the basis of, of your knowledge of the probabilities, of your knowledge of the chances of the, that are based on past experience. And that's not knowledge that gives you certainty, but it's still knowledge that, uh, that gives you a pretty good reason for uh, you know, taking a bet on it. And that's not faith either. I think that's important. Yeah, um, that's you, important. you often get this, 
you often get this kind of argument coming from um, Peterson because he's influenced by pragmatism and pragmatism makes a big deal about these kinds of cases where you have to act without evidence. But most of the time there's, there's some kind of evidence. Um, it's not just a coin. Yeah, thing. particularly when you're looking at the wider context, like I gave some examples about health decisions, but it's not, oh, well, maybe I'll put a rabbit's foot in my pocket and that will cure me. Right. Like you're not flipping a coin between all these random things. So it's, you have, you're operating with a fair amount of knowledge, but you don't know about this specific thing and what exactly to do. Okay, so with this argument that the Baron, the Bishop Baron is making, uh, I keep wanting to call him the Baron, the Bishop is making um, about why some kind of connection with God is the ultimate good. Uh, that's something that raises a problem in this conversation, even for Peterson, because if everything you do, you're really doing for God and you identify God with this unconditioned good, this raises a classic philosophic problem, the, the problem of evil. And here, um, I think Peterson's at his most critical in the conversation. So that's something very, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation to listen to. Uh, so listen to his criticism, listen to the bishop's response. And here, especially, I think it's good to, to listen for uh, things that bear on the question you raised earlier, Ankar, but whether everything he's saying is really congruent with reason in the first place. So let's go to clip three. Stay with, first with your example of, of someone, let's say, who's really wicked. And there are wicked people. Thomas Aquinas says a wicked person, even the most wicked person, is seeking at least the apparent good. So some, something that appears good to that person. Now, they could be totally mixed up about it. It's not, in fact, good for them, but at least it appears good to them. So even the most wicked person, Thomas says, is inchoately seeking God because it's always some good. And now he's got the, all, the wrong sense of it, but he's still being drawn and motivated by this first cause of the will, even the most wicked person. See, but I think that's a sign of hope. That means grace is always possible. Now read whether it's Dostoevsky or Flannery O'Connor and, and people that talk about the most wicked types, but they're sometimes the, the place where grace breaks through, you know, because they are seeking God in their, in their perverse way. So in a way, he's got us coming or going, you know, I mean, whether we're Mother Teresa or we're uh, a, a, a wicked Dostoevsky character, we're all seeking God in some way. And I agree with you too about the Bible. The Bible. Well, I see. I'm I'm not that optimistic because I I think that I think I don't think that pe all evil actions are misguided. That I think you can get to a point where you're so resentful. I really believe this. That you're so yeah. resentful that you will do harm to yourself as well as everyone else. And actually, no, but a suicide is seeking at least the apparent good. A suicide person thinks my non-existence is a good thing. So they are seeking the good, but in a, in a twisted, misguided way. Um, and it's, to me, it's, it's got metaphysical roots, because I, I would hold to the classical view that, that evil is a privatio boni, right? It's a privation of the good. So good is always more fundamental than evil. It has to be. They're not, they're not co-equal principles fighting away. You look at examples like the Columbine killers. That, yeah. Well, you know... You could have, the suicide could have come before the murders, but it didn't. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I even see maybe in those situations, the desire for non-existence, not so much as a seeking of the good, but a, a desire to punish God for the inadequacy yeah, of his creation. Yeah, oh no, it could be. But, but 
at least in their mind, that's a good thing. So that's the Cain connection, that, that you know, the resentment against God and getting back at God. Sure, I see it in the, in the pastoral life all the time. It's a justified thing. They think For them it is, God yeah. deserves it because yeah. look at what's happened. But see, the, but God has his coming or going because that that is in fact a, a quest for God. That's why, I mean, even, even the most uh, resistant sinner is in fact under grace in that sense. That's why I've always liked both Origen and C.S. Lewis say this, that it's the love of God that lights up the fires of hell, right? If someone's in hell, it's, it's the resistance to God's love that's lighting up the fires, that's causing the friction. And so God has you coming or going. I mean, is God present in hell? Sure, because whatever is has to be grounded in God. And God's even present in the fires of hell because it's the resistance against God that's causing them. For the love of God. <laughs> so I got like here, I think Peterson is pushing back in a really honest way. Uh, he's pointing to a real life example, the Columbine killers, uh, Harrison Klebold. And he's saying, so you're saying, Bishop Barron, that these guys were really seeking the apparent good for them, even though they, uh, they killed a bunch of people and then killed themselves all to no purpose whatsoever. It seems if you, if you use words in a meaningful way that these guys just wanted to destroy things. They didn't want to achieve anything good. Uh, I, you know, I, they talk about suicide and elsewhere in the conversation, there's a conversation about uh, people who are terminally ill. And so suffering from a lot of pain, it's, it's, a lot more plausible in a case like that, where somebody who wants to alleviate the pain is maybe seeking good for themselves, or at least trying to avoid a bad, something bad. But like, what's, what's the excuse that Harrison Klebold or Hitler have in a case? I don't see it. This is just, uh, he's making stuff up. He, the, 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 the bishop is just doubling down by saying, oh no, really, that's just uh, their misguided apprehension of the good. I mean, even his fictional hell ends up getting rewritten to be <laughs> symbolic of Satan seeking God. Uh, so he's, he's, he's fictionalizing his fiction. Um, and it, it reminds me of something, uh, and this, this will connect to something we discussed later, it reminds me of something that Ayn Rand once wrote uh, in her essay, How Does One Lead a Rational Life in an Irrational Society? Where she says, a man who struggles not to acknowledge that evil is evil, finds it increasingly dangerous to acknowledge that the good is the good. The man who begins by saying there's some good in the worst of us goes on to say there's some bad in the best of us. Then there's got to be some bad in the best of us. And then it's the best of us who make like life difficult. Why don't they keep silent? Um, and we'll see later, he's gonna, he's gonna say the second part too, that there's some bad in the best of us uh, or some bad in the, in the, yeah, some bad in the best of us. Uh, so your reactions to this clip? Okay. Yeah, I thought it, one way to look at it is to go back to a little bit, we were talking about science, that it's based in reason, religion is based in faith, and that what that you say, Peterson's being more honest here. I think another way of putting that is so I agree with that. Another perspective on that same thing is that Peter, Peterson, the scientist, is really coming out here, in particular particularly Peterson, the psychologist, is coming out here. So um, 
the bishop is, as you said, I think rightly, is making up stuff. And Peterson is saying, no, but look, I'm a psychologist. I deal with people, people like the Columbine killers and so on. You, I mean, a uh, psychologist deals with a whole swath and range of people. And he's saying, in effect, I've encountered and observed people who I don't think you can think of as they're pursuing the good in some misguided way. They're pursuing destruction. They're pursuing other people's destruction. Peterson here and in many places brings up that he thinks envy is a deep motivation, that it's, I want to knock other people down and destroy them. And that that's the motivation. It's not um, that there's something deeper going on. They're not misguided about thinking about the good. They're after destruction. And I think he's right about that. Um, I don't think he's fully right about his analysis of that mentality, uh, even sort of how to describe that mentality, but certainly the causes of it. But that he says, look, if you're looking at the evidence, this is what you see. And the bishop's in effect saying, I don't need to look at the evidence. I've got my faith and it's telling me this and that's what I think. Um, and, but it, it, what Peterson is bringing up is an interesting issue about pe thinking about pe people's fundamental motivation. And it's an issue that Rand was interested in, I think from the beginning of her sort of adult life and thinking as a writer and, and a, a philosopher to the end of her days about thinking about people's basic motivation. And you see it from her first novel, We the Living, that the, the title is capturing, there's a kind of person who is really dedicated to their own life, to their own values, to reality and their happiness in it. And there's a person who, there's a lot of people who just aren't dedicated like that, but there's some subclass of people who seem to be dedicated to the opposite. It's not just they don't have that commitment to their values, happiness, reality. They seem committed to tearing things down and destroying. So, and this has been a recurring theme in Ayn Rand's fiction. And she goes for, to a deeper and deeper analysis of it. And that, that's worthy of a podcast on its own to talk about that. But yeah. this is a real issue that science studies. And what you see in contrast is just somebody making stuff up. Um, and to think that you can reconcile science and religion or science and faith, like this is what it, it actually looks like when you have someone going by faith versus someone trying to be more scientific. Yeah, this is all this this whole theory that every even the most evil people are really seeing, seeking something good is is posited just to try to save this item of faith that everybody's seeking God from refutation. Uh, but if you think that's an act of faith, uh, it's it's going to be pretty small potatoes compared to the next thing they discuss, which is the Christian story of the resurrection. So here, especially, it'll be good to listen for. Is this is this stuff that just seems congruent with reason uh, or or is it not? So uh, let's go to clip four. You have this terrible paradox with Christ, which is partly the paradox that you just laid out, which is a very difficult thing to get a grip on. So what is it exactly? Why is what Christ is doing proper sacrifice? Is it because it is, what is it? His willingness to bear the pain? What is it? 
Yeah, I, that's close to it. So we say the word became flesh. So the, the word who is always in the presence of the Father. So the word doesn't worship the Father because the word is God. So that, we shouldn't talk about worship within the Trinity itself. But now the word becomes flesh because the Father, God so loved the world, he sent his only son that all who believe in him might have eternal life in his name. He sends the son into flesh, but into flesh that's been so compromised by sin. So not into a pristine creation. Let's take that apart for just a sec so that people are clear about it. So the theory here is that there is something wrong with the structure of creation. That, that's its steepness and sin. And everyone has to ask if they believe that. And, and it seems to me that people do, is there's a sense that things aren't how they should be, that we're not yeah. how we could be, that something right. it has gone astray and is continuing to go astray, which is a mystery in and of itself if it's a God-created world. It's like, well, yeah. why is that well, precisely? Well, I mean, the quick answer is is corrupted freedom, you know, or or a, a misguided freedom, you might say. But the word comes into flesh, into fallen flesh, and the cross is what the cross is: cruelty and hatred and violence and institutional injustice and stupidity. And you know, if you read the the passion narratives, it's a, it's a beautiful sort of poetic presentation of all that's wrong with us that comes out to meet him. And bearing all of that, he continues in his relationship of, of obedience and unity with the Father. So bearing the sins of the world, bearing all the dysfunction and, and twisted quality of the world, he brings us back online. So in, in the attitude of the word made flesh on the cross, we see a sinful, corrupt hate-filled world now brought painfully back online. That's the sacrifice of the cross that's pleasing to the Father. So we should never play the game of, well, the Father is like a, is a dysfunctional alcoholic father that, you know, is now demanding this blood sacrifice. It's, it's rather the Father is pleased by the Son's entry into our fallen situation and his bearing of all that dysfunction, even as he brings us back online to the Father. Okay, so why does, okay, so let's say Christ maintains his, I know this isn't exactly the right way of thinking about it, but it'll work for rhetorical purposes, I think. It's, so Christ is tortured by betrayal, by, by, by physically yeah. and spiritually as well, because the best way to torment someone is when is to punish them despite their innocence, right? Yeah. So right right, right, right. Or maybe worse than that, to punish them because of their virtues. That's even better. And so that's that's intrinsic in the story as well. Christ bears up under that. He doesn't repudiate God or doesn't repudiate his own essence. It's something like that. He but the, then what is the, is the example of that, is the example of bearing up under that exceptional duress and maintaining a moral stance, is that the example that redeems the world? Is it that if you do that in your own life, the world is de facto redeemed? It, it is that, but more, because if it's just that, then a Pelagian system would be true, that we just need a good you know, moral exemplar. It, it's something more, well, it's a bit more, more than just merely good. I mean, it's superhuman right, it's, what's being asked for. No, true, but it, it's something more metaphysical about it. It's a reworking of the way things are. 
if, if Jesus takes upon himself all the dysfunction of the world and swallows it up in the ever greater divine mercy, so it's, it's Christ bearing all of our dysfunction, but transfiguring it in his great act of, of forgiveness and obedience to the Father. I think all of that coming together simultaneously is the sacrifice that's pleasing to the Father. So that's just like hearing testimony from your, your good friend. <laughs> that's, that's just like if your friend gives you directions uh, and uh, it's congruent with things you know and you trust him, that's the kind of thing we should accept. I mean, how many things in this excerpt are completely absurd? Jesus is supposed to be sacrificed to please God, but Jesus is God. So God has sacrificed himself uh, to please himself, or something like that, uh, add to this all the nonsense about the Trinity. There's three entities that are still one. They're one, but they're not three. Um, God created a world of his own volition that's steeped in sin, even though uh, he's supposed to be all good and all powerful and could have made it better if he wanted to, but he didn't. So it's all part of his plan for some mysterious purpose we don't understand. Um, and but that's not a problem because there's there's misguided human freedom. Uh, we're the ones who are to blame for the problems, not God, even though God made us and gave us the free will and knows everything that we're going to do with it. And somehow that still makes it free. Uh, and even though he is the one who made the world that's supposed to be so filled with suffering and sin, he still needs to do something to fix that by sacrificing his son, even though he could have just made it differently. Uh, and then the reason that that's supposed to redeem the world is not because uh, his doing that is going to set some kind of good moral example for all of us mortals, because that would be Pelagianism. Pelagianism is the heresy of thinking that human beings uh, don't suffer from original sin, that they're morally perfectible and we can't be heretics. So we can't have that kind of freedom. Um, uh, but even though freedom was the thing that we were supposed to need to get God off the hook, uh, for uh, creating a sinful world in the first place. I mean, this is just all completely absurd. Uh, and if you think that that's absurd, um, wait until you see what they have to say about morality. But before we get to that, Ankar. Yeah, you're describing it as absurd and you describe the Trinity as nonsense, which I think is true from the perspective of logic, reason, science. It's absurd and it's nonsense, but it's deliberate nonsense. And if you take the Trinity, for instance, that you're supposed to accept that God is simultaneously three and one. And then there's a whole story as, I mean, this is part of the story of how they interact. This three, this three things interact, but it's really one. So in reason, in logic, this is um, a contradiction. It's is this congruent with reason? Is it congruent with things you know? No, it flies in the face of everything you know. It flies in the face of the laws of logic. And you're supposed to accept it anyway. Indeed, I think of it as it's a test. Will you accept the supernatural? Will you accept something that we say is beyond reason, logic, this world? things of limited indefinite identity. I'm telling you there's a realm where none of this applies. So it's not a supplement. It's not just adding something that I wasn't able to figure out, but oh yeah, when you tell me it 
connects to and integrates with everything I know. It's you're supposed to be able to say, and this is why it's an act of faith, to hell with everything I know, to hell with reason and logic, I'm going to accept this anyway. So the bishop starts off by telling you, oh yeah, no, I'm not against reason, I'm not against logic, I'm not telling you to not use these, and so I'm just saying there's something that it can help you sub, uh, supplement these. And then you get into the video and you get the actual view, which is, and the Trinity is a good example of the supernatural, and it's meant to thwart your mind, which means your logical, rational mind. And you're supposed to believe despite it flying in the face of what you know. And both the issue of the supernatural and what they're focused on of, of Christ's sacrifice on the cross are good examples of saying that religion is fundamental to Western culture, but that that's not a good thing, or that Christianity is fundamental, but that, that is not a good thing. So the idea that of the supernatural and that there's a whole realm that goes um, against reason, logic, uh, the natural world, that is in one way or another part of the Western mind. And I think it's a, it's a falsehood, it's, and it's anti-reason, anti-science. It has held us back. And then the idea that um, morality, what, however you flesh it out, its essence and heart is going to be about self-sacrifice about you have to give up, you have to surrender, you have to live in pain, look at Christ on the cross as your exemplar and so on. That haunts the Western mind and Western civilization. Even when you get thinkers telling you, no, I'm putting re uh, religion aside, I'm just going by the facts, science. So when they get to morality, it's always about self-sacrifice. Um, and this is... The, and you have to understand that you have to see how fundamental re religion and Christianity is to the Western mind and Western culture, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing. Yeah, and uh, we're getting short on time. So I wonder if, do you think we should still play the next clip? I could probably give a verbal summary of some of the highlights from it and then uh, we can comment on it. Yeah, why don't we do so that? So the, the next clip is where this, where this all gets cashed in you talked about how faith was a kind of test. You know, you'll, if you'll swallow this, you'll follow us anywhere. That's certainly going to apply in spades to uh, practicing a faith-based morality. And it's uh, not a big surprise that the faith-based morality that they go on to talk about is the morality of self-sacrifice. Peterson raises the question of uh, why is the church not attracting enough followers? Uh, maybe it's because you're not demanding enough uh, from young people. The church asks you to give up everything. Uh, and the, the bishop says, yes, it, it asks you to be a saint. It asks you to be like St. Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa and try to bear the suffering of the world and pick up the dying. And, and, and the, the part that really got me uh, where was where they talk about the, the bishop talks about how people today uh, are too busy playing around in the in the shallows. He calls the cultural self invention a very boring culture. What we should really be doing is living a life of adventurous self sacrifice. And 
the indulgence in absurdities becomes even more pronounced at this point. It's boring to invent yourself. It's boring to create your own purposes in life, but it's adventurous to accept this conventional wisdom of many, many centuries to do as you're told, to give up your happiness. I mean, it's, it's more uh, inversion of concepts, a more inversion of, uh, of logic. Uh, and I think it really underscores that the real thing that, that is demanded of you uh, by faith uh, is this kind of self-sacrifice. And the biggest thing they want you to sacrifice is your reason, is your mind, is your understanding. Uh, the, the, the reason you're asked to do these things doesn't need to make sense. You shouldn't ask these questions. You shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't try to self-invent yourself, uh, create new values. You should take what's given to you. Uh, and you know, I mentioned at the beginning that a lot of people think that Jordan Peterson's a kind of hero for opposing the left. People, uh, people celebrate him for opposing the left. And he's not necessarily endorsing everything that the bishop is saying, but to the extent that he's getting on board with this idea of faith, uh, which, which really means sacrificing your mind, well, that's a much worse and a much bigger sacrifice than anything you're going to sacrifice by paying your taxes to, uh, to left-wing governments. Now, this, I think this Baron guy is just pure evil, and especially the way that he's targeting the ambition of young people who are just starting to pursue their happiness in life. He says, that's boring. You should be adventurous. Um, you know, I, I don't think Peterson gets on board with all of this, uh, but he's certainly lending aid and comfort to it. Uh, he does this in a lot of his other work uh, where he, he puts a lot of emphasis on the importance of taking responsibility for your life, which for him is a kind of package deal between being something difficult, which yields the most satisfaction, and sacrifice. I mean, it's true that it, the, the, the happiness really comes from the achievement of values, which can be a difficult thing to do. Uh, but that's only a superficial similarity with doing things that are difficult because they don't give you anything. Yeah, you, and you see the issue of subjectivity come back here. And I think it's one of the reasons that Peterson either can't push back or actually shares this kind of perspective. Like if you take religion seriously, as there's a whole consciousness in charge of the world, then you're taking subjectivism seriously. Even if you protest, no, this is really objectivity. You're taking the essence of the subjectivist view, which that consciousness can be in charge. And if you're then trying to some way rebel about, against that, but taking it seriously, you won't be able to rebel against it. And so the bishop is relying on this kind of, um, uh, you can call it equivocation of running two things together that don't belong together. And that's the um, subjectivism as I make up my own truth. Um, so if I say two plus two equals five, it equals five for me and so on. And I make up my own life. And that you should have the same attitude towards that. You don't make up your own truth and you don't make up your own life. The idea that you're self-created and you should pursue a life that you want and you want to build and you're going to build it. No, that's, and you bring it up rightly that what they're stressing is, no, you have to go by what you're told by conventions, traditions. So that's what an adventurous life supposedly looks like. That is complete BS. And it's evil to tell a person that, that if you think you don't um, invent the truth, 
then you can't invent your own life and you can't be self-created and so on. Just follow what you're told. Um, you have to take responsibility for your life. And the whole idea, and this is a deeper way in which it's true again that religion and Christianity saturate the Western mind after Greece and Rome, but they, they saturate it in a way that's mind-destroying. The whole view of morality, that it's associated with pain. Morality is about suffering, pain, grinning and bearing it. And if you're going to be a moral person, you're going to take responsibility and grin and bear it, and maybe even look for the biggest uh, burdens to carry and then try to carry them, like the uh, uh, Christ carrying the cross. That is perverse as a view of morality. And this is one of the deepest elements of religion that Rand is rebelling against, that it says it's false, it's evil, it destroys your life, if you think about it this way. Morality should be about a quest for life, for happiness, for um, the best you can make of yourself and the world around you. And you have to take responsibility, that that takes a tremendous amount of effort, of thought, of action, of production. And if you don't take that responsibility, you're not going to achieve the good. It's not like you're handed the good and you have to screw it up. You're not handed the good. You have to produce it, create it, and you have to make yourself into the kind of person who's able to do that. So she stresses both responsibility and that life is about happiness, joy, and that that is not a trivial perspective. It's one of the greatest aspects of America and sort of the American approach to life, that it's the pursuit of happiness. And you have to work if you want to be happy, it's not handed to you. But if you're free, you can work and you can achieve. Well said. Uh, we're at the top of the hour, but we've gotten a lot of questions. I think we should at least maybe answer a couple of them. I've highlighted a few that I think are especially good. Uh, let's start with this one about faith. So someone on Zoom asked, in the first clip you played, Baron said that faith should be separate from reason. Maybe uh, many people who believe in God fully embrace reason and reality in the material world and hold faith in the domain of spirituality. My question for you, what harm does belief in God cause? What harm do you think can be caused by a widespread adoption of Baron's and Peterson's viewpoint? Ankar, how would you address that? Well, one aspect is just what I was touching on that and, and, broadly, the whole tying of morality to it's about pain, suffering, uh, sacrifice, as I put it, like one common way, it's you have to grin and bear it. And if you're a good person, yeah, you'll carry burdens. That's what Christ did. That's what Mother Teresa did. This is what you should do. And it is a perverse view and one of the consequences that it has, both for an individual and for a culture, is at some point, people will say, I cannot do this. And it will be to hell with morality. If this is what morality demands of me, to hell with it. And then you live more and more in an amoral jungle. You don't have actual proper moral principles. And you have people who saying um, that I well, why should I be more? 
I don't have to live up to this. All it does is create destruction in my life. Most people take it like they kind of guilty and it's I'm moral some of the time and not moral other times. On Sunday, I go to church or I give to charities or work in a soup kitchen. Other times I don't because um, I don't want to suffer and have pain all through my week. Um, but if morality is about the pursuit of the positive, you want it to be. I'm moral 100% of the time. I'm dedicated to my moral ideal. And indeed, I think that's part of what it means to be truly alive. And that's one of the things that this kind of religious view strips from a person and strips from everybody. The way that the question was posed was people uh, segregate, they compartmentalize their lives into the material questions and questions about the domain of spirituality. But I think what your answer underscores is that you can't do that compartmentalization. If, if the, the so-called world of spirituality is, among other things, about morality, and morality is about living in this world, then there's definitely going to be implications. And it's one of two things. It's either you stick to this morality and you kill yourself because of it, uh, because that's you can't, you, if, you, if you're serious about it, you have to basically be Mother Teresa and flagellate yourself, or you compromise it on it and then you feel guilty and your, your, your self-esteem is undercut. Um, that's a good way of answering it, I think. We got another question from Zoom. Uh, is fear of social isolation at the core of why one adopts religion? And isn't that a rational fear in some contexts? It, it, it certainly does seem, Ankar, that uh, one reason that a lot of people adopt religious beliefs is because it's what they're uh, raised with. It's what their family raises them to believe. And one could argue that a lot of the people who go on accepting these beliefs are afraid to disagree. Um, but is that a rational fear, the fear of disagreement? Yeah, the question puts it in some context. So I can imagine some context where it is that if the, if the religion is backed by the sword, um, and it has been in many eras, and if you, if you read something, say, about Ayan Hirsiali's uh, history and history in Islam. I mean, there's real fear that if you say anything that is considered uh, against the religion, that you're going to have punishment and not just social punishment, but actual physical punishment, threats, and even death sometimes. So in that kind of context, yes. But there's a question for then is, does the person really accept the religion? If you accept it and mouth it out of fear of being beaten up, or burned at the stake or something. Are you really accepting it or not? So the, it's much more the social kind of issues. And in that case, I mean, you could say more about this, but no, I don't, for most, um, if we're thinking like in the modern world, no, it's not a rational fear that people are gonna disagree with you. One last question. This one, I think we can answer quickly. This one popped up in the YouTube chat and we should answer it because I, I know I'm going to get email basically answering, asking the same question. Why ARI? I adore Ayn Rand and her writings and philosophy, but I adore Jordan Peterson as well. I'm conflicted. Um, I mean, my brief answer to that would be, well, there's a conflict there. There is, there is, a, there is a contradiction. There are some real fundamental disagreements. 
uh, between Rand's philosophy and, and some of the ideas that Peterson sympathizes with. This doesn't mean that Peterson's all bad. Uh, he, he can be an interesting person to have conversations with, but I think when there are these fundamental disagreements, it's really important to call them out. And then uh, people in the audience have to, if they think there's a conflict, they have to make a choice. Uh, which of these fundamental ideas do they accept? you have anything to add to that? Well, I take it uh, the why ARI question, like that's the first part of the question, means why are you pointing out there's a conflict uh, or a disagreement about uh, between the, what Ayn Rand thinks and what Jordan Peterson thinks? And to that, I would say, yeah, if the disagreement was a trivial disagreement, you might ask why, like they agree on all these fundamental things. Why are you pointing out this trivial disagreement? They disagree about how government should be funded or something like that. But it's actually fundamental issues on which they disagree about, well, what is reason? What is faith? Are the, can you reconcile them? Are, the, are they in uh, inherent conflict? And is it the choice in life is, am I gonna go by reason or not? You have to really think about these. And you might say that at their best, the commonality between Peterson and Rand is they're encouraging you to think. And that's in effect what we're doing. You have to really think about these and think, are these really just trivial disagreements? Or are they fundamental? And if they're fundamental, you have to think, what is really right here and what is wrong and how am I going to live by what I think is right and live by and avoid what I think is wrong. And that's what we're encouraging that, that you really think about these issues. And from our perspective, there definitely are fundamental disagreements, not disagreements at the margin. Amen. So uh, let's, uh, let's start to wrap up with some resources that our viewers can uh, check out if they want to learn more about some of the things that we talked about today. Uh, one good place to go just to get an uh, overview of some of Ayn Rand's ideas about religion and faith and some of the other topics that we have discussed today is to go to the Ayn Rand lexicon. Uh, that's all online for free. If you go to bit.ly slash Ayn Rand lexicon, you can look up terms like atheism, God, faith, reason, religion, or excerpts, key excerpts from Ayn Rand's texts where she gives her views on these subjects. Uh, next up, uh, one essay that you can read or a lecture actually that you can listen to is uh, Rand's lecture slash essay, Faith and Force, the Destroyers of the Modern World. Uh, this is an essay uh, from the early 1960s, where she gives her view on how these uh, fundamental Judeo-Christian ideas that we've been discussing, they have had a big impact on the West, as I think Peterson's right about, but as we discussed at the beginning, and as you might infer from what we've just discussed, it's not been a good impact. Uh, and she talks about how faith leads to force, and it leads to the uh, collectivist totalitarian regimes, many of which uh, Peterson himself is, is, has been a critic of. So that will be, I think, a useful resource to examine. Um, but last of all, we mentioned before that we, we actually had a conversation with Jordan Peterson on stage at the Objectivist Conference. I think this was two, three years ago. Uh, this is available also on our YouTube channel. If you go to bit.ly slash the human soul, it's an event that was called Philosophy in the Human Soul. Uh, one of the things that they discuss in great depth at this event is 
the importance of giving objective definitions to one's concepts, something that uh, Peterson is skeptical about, but which the objectivists, Greg Salmieri and Jerome Brook really insist upon. And I think that's something that connects to a number of issues that came up today, why you it's important to uh, think of faith as opposed to rational trust, break up that package, they're fundamentally different. Likewise, um, the issue of what it means to take responsibility, how if that has any rational meaning to it, it's not at all like uh, the kind of morality of self-sacrifice that Peterson seems to be endorsing. Uh, otherwise, I'd like to let you all know about our next episode. This will be a week from today on June 30th, uh, Understanding the Meaning of Independence Day, our upcoming uh, Independence Day holiday. This will be an episode with uh, me and uh, my colleague Keith Lockage. So tune in a week from today, same time, same place. And otherwise, if, you're, uh, if you liked what you saw today and you'd like to see more episodes of New Idea Live in the future, you can always hit uh, the subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube, click that bell to get notifications when we go live or post new videos. Uh, also consider writing a comment, especially if you're watching the recorded version of this, This that helps uh, optimize the algorithm. Same thing on Facebook. If you're watching on Facebook, like this episode, share it, write a comment on it. And if you would like to send us email, uh, maybe because you have questions about topics that came up today, if you have ideas for future episodes, uh, if you, we, we, ought, we read everything that comes in, we respond to a lot of it in due time, send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. So I think that will uh, wrap us up for the day. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ankar, for having this discussion with me. Uh, and uh, uh, we will see you all uh, next weekend, uh, next week for our Independence Day episode. Thank you. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.